third chapter? I know, I think I've seen the first two. And so anyway, the first two chapters. Hey, nobody was here. Yeah. We didn't take this. Uh, we, the last time all of us was here, we had what are you talking about? Mark was here. Oh, okay. Who was here last time? We no, didn't do no, this last week, but what it is, because that I knew that everybody wasn't gonna get here for the weather. We uh, somebody else was here, Paula and, and uh, her husband. And we studied another subject exactly. in Romans. Yeah. We studied uh, four chapters in Romans, so we can come back to this tonight. So it was a week before last, so we studied this, and that was uh, involved. in anyway, we gave the introduction, the dating, and everything, the authorship, and everything like that on Ephesians, and we covered the first uh, first two chapters there. Uh, in the let me briefly just hit what we had on there in that first two, and then we'll uh, start with this third chapter and go ahead and I think finish it up tonight. Well, now, first of all, that Paul wrote this somewhere around 60 A.D., and he's in prison at the time he writes it. In fact, uh, uh, the he's, he's in, he was in jail in Rome for about two years' time. He's during his imprisonment at Rome that he writes his letter to the Ephesians. And it wasn't really just to one church per se, but it was to all the Christians in that area. In fact, one thing to keep in mind that, uh, that sometimes we allow our conception of the church today to interfere with what was actually then in the first century. Uh, in the first century church, uh, the, the church really didn't own land or buildings or anything like that. And the church at Corinth or the church at Ephesus or the church at Galatia were individual house churches meeting all over the city. And then the whole thing was referred to as the Church of God at Corinth, or the, or the Lord's Church at Ephesus, or whatever. But uh, they didn't have cars or transportation like we do or anything like that. And they didn't have any land or property. And so as people were, were converted, generally more well-to-do people that had nice homes and things like that, like Philemon is a good example. He had a church in that in his house, and Paul addresses that. And that's why that when you read at the end of Paul's letters, a number of times he'll say, salute the church that's meeting at so-and-so's house, and the church that's meeting at so-and-so's house. And so you had groups of Christians meeting just like we're meeting here. And remember uh, in the Gospels, Jesus had said, where two or three of you are gathered together in my name, I am there with you. And so the Christians really did this formalized approach with big buildings and steeples and things like that. That really was not New Testament Christianity, that... Uh, they went out and they preached it door to door. They preached it in the temple. They preached it in the synagogue. They preached it out on the street. Uh, anywhere they could get an audience, anybody they could talk to. And then people would, uh, in a particular area, if you had a group of people that together, they would come together in a particular home, and, and that would be the church there. And then another mile over, you got a group of people coming together in another home, and that was the church there. And yet they all recognized one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, and they just simply met, you know, in those different homes for Bible study and, and worship and, and things like that. And there was visiting back and forth and all. And from the best that we can ascertain, just like when he wrote to Titus, and he said, appoint elders in every city. And so the indication is that within like Corinth and at Ephesus and all, you would have these mature, older, spiritual men that were the overseers of the Christians in that area, and they were concerned about all the Christians in, in that particular area. And in Acts 19, you can read about, or Acts 20, I should say. Acts 20, you can read about Paul calling together the elders at Ephesus. And you can read about the establishment of the church of uh, the Ephesians in Acts 19. 
Uh, Paul went in there, uh, converted a group of 12 people, laid hands on them, and imparted these miraculous gifts. And remember, when you read about the miraculous gifts and all, that when the apostles converted somebody in the first century, they didn't have a New Testament. It hadn't been written yet. All they had was the Old Testament scriptures. And so what they would do, they, one man would be given the gift of prophecy, uh, another man the uh, uh, gift of speaking in a language that he hadn't learned, another man the gift of interpreting that language, somebody the gift of knowledge, gift of wisdom, somebody the gift of miracles, somebody the gift of healing. And so the ones with the gift of information would convey that, but then how would you know that it was not coming right off the top of their head? Well, then the guy that had these miraculous gifts was performing miracles and healing, and that was the proof that the message was from God. And God did it in such a way that nobody, no one individual was glorified or anything, but it all took place from within the body as a whole. And so that's the way they were getting their information and preaching and teaching, and the apostles then left town, and then so what they left then was a group of people with certain individuals that had these gifts. Well, then these people would convert other people and all, but they didn't have the power uh, to pass that, those gifts on through the land on their hands. Only the apostles did. And like you read in, in Acts, the 8th chapter, when Philip, who had a gift that the apostles had imparted to him, went into Samaria and converted some people and performed miracles and confirmed his testimony, but then he couldn't pass on those miraculous gifts, and so they called for Peter and John. And Peter and John come in and you know, lay hands on them and part these miraculous gifts. And then you have uh, uh, even Simon, the sorcerer, that was converted, making the statement that he recognized that these gifts were passed on through the laying on the hands of the apostles. And so while God was establishing the church, the apostles were sort of like Moses in the Old Testament that the law was given and then, and then God performed all those miracles around Moses to confirm and prove that that message was from God. Well, the apostles were given this information and God was performing those miracles around them and then as they established church, they would impart these various gifts of the Holy Spirit. And this would be an essential until the time when you would eventually have the New Testament completed. And of course, we're not going into all that tonight, but I'm telling you, God, this would be an essential, and they would, act, they would actually have all of this going on. And so Paul writes the church at Ephesus during this, during this period of time. All right, now, Paul's concerned about the church there because he established it. And, and the church there, as all of the early Christian churches, were under, under persecution. And the number one persecuting force at this time was the Jews, who thought that uh, Jesus was an imposter, that he was not the Messiah, and that Paul was leading people astray and all. And so these letters went out for several reasons. One, they wanted to teach them to hang in there, uh, that, you know, even against the Jewish opposition, judgment day was coming for the Jews. And of course, he had reference to the destruction of Jerusalem, the downfall of the Jewish nation in 70 AD. Another thing he's concerned about is that, just like we'll see with the Ephesians and some passages we get into tonight, these people had come out of idolatry. And unlike the Jews, their past background was not moral. That uh, in their worship to Baal, for example, that they committed adultery, fornication in their worship to their idol gods, and all kinds of debauchery and lasciviousness and and all kinds of sins of the flesh, you name it, and they did it. I mean, and it was just part of life for them. It's sort of like we can see in our society that we are bringing up a generation that is not as knowledgeable in the Bible as in previous generations in this country, 
And the result is that homosexuality is accepted. Uh, sexual promiscuity uh, before marriage or during marriage or anything like that is accepted in our society. Uh, multiple relationships in any way you want to have them are, are accepted and everything. In the same way, then, you can understand that the Gentile world, who didn't even have the scriptures at all, not the Old Testament or anything, they were just turned over to the lust of their own flesh, and that was their society. Okay, so here comes Paul in, or one of the other apostles, and by sheer evidence, they convert these people by the score. And they get them to convince that all your problems and all the problems of life are because of sin, and that you're going to die because of sin. And you need to repent of your sins, and then after you repent of your sins, then they tell them about Jesus and his life and the fact that he was murdered, but God in his wisdom chose that act to allow him to be offered up as a sacrifice for sins and made it possible for you to put your trust in that sacrifice and you can be righteous because of him because he lived a perfect life. And then, of course, the evidence for his resurrection. But although they were converted and they saw that and they had been intellectually persuaded of this, Paul leaves town and where do these people go? They go right back to their same old environment that they live in and the same people. And so to appreciate Paul's concern, you would maybe put yourself in a position of a, uh, maybe a counselor in the inner city situation, and here you are uh, counseling with people that have been on drugs, uh, been out here in the, in the ghetto, you know, and all kinds of problems, and here you've got this person in, in your little office, and while you're talking with them, they're just nodding in agreement with you, and they can see what you're saying, and they can see that this behavior is foolish, and I need to quit it, and, and I need to live a different way. And so you really think you're getting somewhere. And you do. You persuade that person intellectually. But then they go back out there, and they're going to go back to the same house. And they go back to the same friends. And those people are on drugs. And those people are sexually active. And those people are homosexuals. And those people are, you name it. And so this person, nine times out of ten, is going right back into it. Unless you've got some contact and can do something to get that person out of the environment. Well, what the church is designed to do, and he'll really get into this now in, in visions, the church is designed not just to convert a person to Christ, but now we see the, the necessary of ha actually having a band of people together. The church is designed to aid people in handling this environment. You create another environment. And now you enter into fellowship with people who have also been converted and who have also changed their life. And these are now your mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, and that's why they started cuddling one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, that this is now your spiritual family, and it's going to be even stronger than the other family, and that with the, the church, with all of you working together, we can change you, you know, and work with you. So Paul writes to the Ephesians, and he knows the environment they're in, so he wants the church to be strong, and he wants them to hang together, and he wants them to study together and to worship together, and he wants them to have fellowship in every way, and he wants to make sure that they are their whole life is working in such a way that, that they realize all the time that God's end result is to mold me in the image of Christ, but then all my pagan friends out there, I want to take this same good news to them. And so he, out of that vein, he writes this letter. All right? He talks about all the blessings that they have in Christ Jesus in the first chapter. In other words, if you're in the process of, of being tempted back into something that's wrong, 
See, one of the things that I'm going to do is, if I've been getting you to do right a little bit, I want to remind you of all the good things that's happened to you as a result of this decision you made. So he does that in chapter 1. Then he comes along in chapter 2 and, and talks about this great thing of, of salvation in Christ. And Paul knows that these people are not perfect. That even now, uh, in Christ, that they're not living perfect lives. And he wants to let them know what a great thing they have in Christ so that they'll just keep on maturing and not get down or anything. And so then you come to this statement, to me, the key to the whole book, so far as what Paul is really driving home to their mind, part of it, uh, in Acts, or Ephesians 2, and beginning verse 8, Ephesians 2 and, and verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, okay, he wants them to know that, you know, you are saved not because you earn it, not because you're good enough, not because of any works you do, not because of how right you are in some particular doctrine. You are saved by the grace of God. The word grace itself literally means unmerited favor. You didn't earn it. If you did, it wouldn't be grace. You are saved by God's grace because of your faith in it. You put your trust in God's grace. But the end result of all of this is that God wants to create you anew as a people under good works. And so rather than having people that are saved by good works, we have people that are saved by God's grace. And then because they love God and they appreciate Him and they're thankful for what He's done, then that motivates out of love good works. And so and He wants this to be a motivating force to those people. In other words, that as they think on their salvation in Christ and this great gift that He gave them, the end result of this should be to motivate them on the godliness. And again, that is so easy, I think, for us to relate to that if you just think of it from the standpoint that anybody that has been good to you and has gone out of their way for you or done anything for you, it's very easy to have a natural desire of you want to do something good for them. Uh, in fact, you know, it's been interesting to me over the years in watching situations that uh, uh, in the church and in the world and all like that, that there are some people that when they go to the hospital or when something happens of a bad in their family or anything like that, that they complain about being alone, nobody cares about them, and about the only way that I've been able, that I can get people to be concerned is to, is to try to shame them. You know, need to go see that person. You need to do this and you need to do that and all. Then there are those people that whenever something happens, that there are people that just from all over and they want to help out and want to do something. And, and they're willing to give money or help out or do anything to, to try to help them over this. Well, I don't believe that's an accident. Uh, if you have lived a type of life where you're unselfish with yourself and you're, you're, you're really in tune to the needs of other people and you're considerate of other people and you've made friendships and all, when something happens to you, you're going to find that, that people are going to respond in life. On the other hand, if you've been somewhat isolated, uh, somewhat selfish, uh, concerned about yourself and everything like that, you're going to find in that time of need that there's not going to the only people to be there'll be those who have a sense of duty will help out, 
And sometimes the fleshly family helps out as a sense of duty. But you're going to find that you're not going to pull too much of that other there. But I'm saying there's just a natural tendency for all of us to want to do for somebody that comes across in our eyes as being unselfish. Uh, how many of us uh, see things on TV where somebody has had a catastrophe and you don't even know the people? But here is a hard-working person who's doing the best he can, and this catastrophe has wiped him out. And what happens? People by the thousands sin to help their need. Then you've got other people over here on Skid Row, and, and they're getting on TV and saying, you need to help out these homeless people. And people are not jumping in there helping them out. Because they're thinking, hey, nobody twisted his arm and made him uh, drink the wine, and, 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 and he's got a responsibility to get up and work just like I do. And so, consequently... Although the liberals might holler and shame us and everything, most of us just let them lay out there on Skid Row. But on the other hand, you let something happen to somebody that's trying, and there's a natural tendency to want to help. So uh, the reason I go into that is because uh, so many times when you talk about salvation by grace through faith and not of works, and you don't earn it in any sense, it's, it's strictly the gift of God. Uh, somebody's scared to death that you're going to give a license for sin or that people just won't worship enough or do enough or give enough. And that's not the case. Uh, a true understanding of God's grace does just the opposite. Uh, love will outdo anything that legalism will do. And, and it'll do it without boasting or without pride because you're just doing it out of love. There's nothing to boast about or anything like that. Okay, now let's come on over to this third chapter. And uh, let's go ahead and, and read. Now we read that first part of the third chapter. I remember reading it where the... Uh, first few verses there where Paul is telling them that uh, look at verse 3 this mystery made known to me by the revelation as I have already written briefly in reading this then you will understand my insight in the mystery of Christ which was not made known to men in earlier generations as it has now been revealed by the spirit to God's <coughs> holy apostles and prophets this mystery that through the good news, the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body. All right, now, notice how we come to understand this mystery. He says, in reading this, in verse 4, you will be able to understand my insight. The Holy Spirit was not doing something mystical to the minds of these people so that they understood. But the Holy Spirit had revealed this information to the apostles and prophets. And they were writing it. And so he says that the Holy Spirit has revealed this to us, to the holy apostles and prophets. When you read it, then you will understand. Okay? Notice the mystery there was the fact that the Gentiles would be heirs together with Israel. Okay? A mystery is just simply something that you don't understand because you don't have all the facts. In the Old Testament... God did not give the complete information of how that eventually he would reconcile Jew and Gentile together in Christ and make one body the church, and that the true seed of Abraham would be those that had faith like Abraham. So the Jew had a misunderstanding. He thought the church was going to be strictly Jewish, and that Israel would reign over the world, and the Gentiles would benefit because they had this great Jewish king, the Messiah, reign. And they had a misunderstanding. And so now, to show you how they got the right understanding as it was revealed to the apostles over a period of time, remember in Acts, the 10th chapter, 
through the first nine chapters, you don't have anybody but Jews who converted to Christianity. Then all of a sudden, the 10th chapter, you got Cornelius, a Gentile. And Cornelius, we read that he, he has come to see truth in the law of Moses, that this is a true God. And so he's become a convert to the true God. And this Roman soldier prays to God, and his prayers are sent as a memorial. And so God has chose this devout Roman soldier to be the first Gentile that's converted. And so the problem is getting some Jew to preach to him. And so remember what God had to do to get Peter to go to him? There was this, this uh, sheet to come down out of heaven, and these unclean animals that the Jew was not supposed to eat. Peter saw the vision, the sheep come down, and then God said, Peter, arise, kill and eat. And remember, Peter said, no, Lord, I'm not going to eat that. I've never eaten anything unclean. And then God made the statement that Peter still didn't understand. He said, Peter, what I have cleansed, you no longer call unclean. He thought about that. About that time, here comes a man uh, knocking on Peter's door. And the angels of God have come. And Peter is, is uh, these messengers, or the angels have sent these messengers. And so they say that, hey, Cornelius has seen a vision, and he saw you coming and preaching the gospel to him. Well, Peter's really interested in this now. Here's this vision that he doesn't fully understand, but then here's a Gentile that is asking to come and said he's seen a vision about Peter. So Peter is so suspicious that he grabs six other Jewish brethren. He's not going to go in that Gentile house alone. And he grabs those Jewish brethren, and he goes because of the angel of God. He gets there to the house of Cornelius, and then Cornelius relates this vision, and they've seen the same thing. So Peter knows that God is involved here. And so then Peter makes this observation in, in verse 28 of Acts 10. He said, listen, Cornelius, you know that by the law of Moses that it's not lawful for me to be here. But... Then he goes ahead and talks about what he's seen, and in verse 34 and 35 he says, I now perceive that God is no respecter of man, for that in every nation he that feareth God and worketh righteousness is acceptable with him. He went ahead and preached the gospel to Cornelius. The Holy Spirit fell and gave God's stamp of approval. He looked at those Jews and he said, Well, who can forbid the water? That these that have received the Holy Spirit like us might not be baptized. And then they begrudgingly went ahead and baptized those Gentiles. So Paul here, up until this time, it was a mystery. They didn't understand it. But now through more information, for the first time, the apostles have come to realize that the church is going to be more than just Jewish. It's going to be Jew and Gentile, and God's going to reconcile them all together. And so then after they learn it, then the apostles and Peter and all, they're writing these letters to other Christians and explaining to them that it's Jew and Gentile. And of course, remember, a lot of things were involved in this mystery. They had to get, the, get across to the Jew that, no, you don't bind the law of Moses on the Gentile. You can't tell the Gentile that he has to be circumcised to be saved. You can't tell the Gentile he's got to keep all of your holidays and everything like that to be saved. He's saved in Jesus. Your, your system has been nailed to the cross. And that was real hard for the Jew to swallow. But by the same token, he had to pull this Gentile in there and says, you can't live like you've been living out here. That now you're, that, that this law, this moral law that the Jew has, it's right, and it's from God. And you listen to it. And, and But all of you are saved in Christ. The Jew's got the law, but he don't live up to it. You don't have it, and, and you can see where, where, where your ignorance has got you. You both need Jesus and, and his salvation that's in him. And so this great mystery then has been revealed to the apostles 
How did they come to know it? Just like you and I come to know it. Nobody zapped me with anything. I simply read it, just like you've read it. And, and, and so he says it was revealed to the apostles and prophets, and then the, they write it, and you and I read it, and, and we can understand it. Okay, now, he comes on down and look at uh, part of God's will. Look at verse 10, the intent of God's will. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to rulers, <coughs> authorities, and heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are to your glory. So we can see here that God's purpose of the church is to make known the wisdom of God to all the powers that be. Uh, everything we come in contact with. What is God's wisdom? Salvation and a crucified Messiah that was given as your sacrifice, put to death, but yet raised from the dead. God's proof to everybody that the grave is not the end and that he's reconciling everybody, Jew and Gentile, is one body in Christ. And that's the message that was to be proclaimed. And, and it's interesting to, when we look at that too, and, and some more as he talks about here in the fourth chapter, the early church had all kinds of, as they were learning this information, they had all kinds of little debates over circumcision, whether or not to eat meats offered to idols about particular days, had all these little debates, and they argued and fussed and fought, everything like that. But all the time, they all recognized that the number one mission was just like Jesus said, go preach the good news to the entire creation, uh, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teach them all things I've commanded you, that their purpose as a church was to take this good news of salvation to Christ to the entire world. And so they never allowed their misunderstandings of various doctrines and the fact that they were still studying and learning to keep them from cooperatively working together and proclaiming this good news of salvation in Christ. The fact that Jew and Gentile were united together and were all saved in Jesus. And I think, uh, to me, that's an important thing to keep in mind today, that although, you know, as Christians, we may differ on various individual doctrines uh, simply because we're finite, and a lot of times we're not, I may not be operating with all the information, and you may not be operating with all the information. I may be operating with a misunderstanding of some word or some something else, or you might or something. I might have biases because of my background, or you have biases because of your background, but we can see from the experience here in the first century that none of that should keep us from working together for the common purpose of proclaiming salvation in Christ and everybody's hope of eternal life and also teaching the things that are necessary about godliness in life and the fact that, uh, that God's grace ought to motivate us to want to be godly people and to live Christ-like lives in this world. That's, we're all in agreement on that. And we can do that despite the fact that there may be differences on other points. Okay, uh, anybody see anything in that uh, third chapter that uh, uh, we did not hit that you think ought to be brought out? Oh, in that, back there in the mystery. Mm -hmm. Verse 6, this mystery that is that through the gospel, that word, the uh, gospel is. Uh, is actually good news. Good news. 
little means the word. This mystery is that through the, the good news, the Gentiles are heirs, right? Right. And that good news is what you explained a moment ago about uh, what Jesus actually means. Right. Uh, the good news that the bad, you can only have good news in opposition to bad news. All right. The bad news is we're all dying. All right. The Jew, although he's got God's perfect law, had to face up to the reality that he was a sinner and he didn't keep it. That uh, he did the very things he believed was wrong. And he constantly found himself condemned. The Gentile tried to go it on his own and had to admit that he wound up so perverted that men were lusting after men and women after women. And, and they got so off track they didn't even know where they were going. And, and made images and, of, of wood and stone and worshiped God. And, and that uh, even though he had his own conscience that dictated a lot of God's moral law, he didn't even follow that perfection. So each of them had to admit the bad news. Number one, I'm dying because of sin. But number two, I deserve to die. Nobody ever twisted my arm and, and made me do these wrong things that I've done or anything like that. You know, I was raised with, with the idea that uh, I've been taught that, uh, let's say so-and-so had, had uh, had uh, presented a, a great gospel sermon, a good gospel sermon, and the gospel was was more or less the doctrine of that of that group, right? You know, the doctrine of that group was the gospel, and a sound gospel preacher is, uh, and I guess it's freedom of what what group you with. Is a sound gospel preacher is a preacher that preaches that group's doctrine, yeah. See? And but the actual you saying that gospel is actually uh, has an, uh, an entire different meaning. It's, uh, it's the, the good news that, that there's eternal life. Right. right. It's, uh, That's the bad news is death, and then the good news is eternal life. Going back to, to Acts 10, uh, well, let me bring that up. Uh, when you went back over there to show that, that when he was the first Gentile brought in, and in verse 34, when Peter spoke up, he said, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men for every nation. Then he says in verse 36, This is the message God sent to the people of Israel telling the good news. Right. Of peace through Jesus Christ, through the Lord of all. But right. actually said there, you know, that this is the message that God sent to the people of Israel. Yeah. Tell the good news of peace. Yeah, in fact, hold your place right here in Ephesians and flip over here to Romans, I believe that in uh, the very first chapter. And uh see I think I've got uh Romans what now? Romans one. Uh Romans 1, the first chapter, uh, let's see, uh, Mark, would you read that first seven verses, please? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son, who asked who his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through him and for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Okay, and then he goes further, look at this, and look at verse 17, same thing on the gospel. In the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. 
the good news then is stands the, your guarantee, the proof of it, is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And the hope of it, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And the good news is that you can be righteous before God by your faith in Jesus. And anybody that comes along with anything else is just simply not good news. Just like when he told the Galatians, if they're preaching something else to you, it's, it's really not good news. Like we're trying to take them back under the law of Moses. Well, I don't care how perfect the law is that somebody pants before you, it's still not good news to you because in the final analysis, you've got to sit there and, and, and admit, hey, I do not perfectly fulfill the law of love. That uh, I, I don't. That, that sometimes there are things that I know are right and I don't do it. And sometimes I, there are things I know is wrong and due to the weakness of the flesh, I do it. You know, sometimes I lose my temper even though I know it's wrong and I have to apologize afterwards or something like that, you know, or whatever it may, whatever it may be. And so the most perfect law, which is God's law that anybody can present to you, is not good. It's frustrating. And that's what Paul deals with in Romans 7 and 8. You sit there and he says, I love God's law. It's holy, it's righteous, and it's good. But what am I going to do? Wretched man that I am. That there's a, that he condemns me. And he says, I, and, and it marks me as a sinner. And so then he says, thanks be to God, there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And so the good news is, and, and what you said is, is accurate here, that, that for, like I said week before last, that, uh, that I was nothing but a fire insurance preacher for a number of salesmen for, for a number of years. And what I preached in the group that I was affiliated with, I was always pointing out to somebody that if they were in this group and I was in this group, hey, my system's a little more accurate than your system. You know, get out of your system and get my system because it's more it's more accurate. We do this and we do that. Hey, look at those guys. They don't do it, you know. And and I'm saying that really, then you get over here and you, and you puff out your chest a little further because you're a little, little more right. And what is going on out in the religious world now? You have groups going around many times proselyting members of other groups who already believe in Jesus and salvation in him because, hey, we're more right on this point than they are. And so we're going to do that thing. But the, the good news, and by the way, I'm not saying, and don't want to mislead anybody in saying that we shouldn't study as hard as we can and do everything as right as we know how we should. I'm just saying that the reality is that we constantly fall short of perfection. Every one of us. Well, and then the well, good news is salvation that, One of the biggest parts about that good news in its application today is um, I wonder how many people have been uh, in mental anguish, misunderstanding the 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 um, you know the the total grace. I mean the, the, the grace and the forgiveness that's in that's in Jesus. How many people have gone uh, made themselves totally sick, worried about you know, missing this point, or missing that point, uh, you know, and, and and how tough it is to know that you know that you really cannot earn. Points, right? You know? Now, really Catholics may have gone the other way too far when they when they, they get into this uh, go into the little booths and the yeah. confessor sins and it's all that you know they may have gone too far the other way, right? <coughs> but you know, in my early years as a fundamentalist uh, preacher, that uh, that I cannot say one thing that bothered me is I never felt real comfort because see, I was always studying, and there always always this point I didn't understand might be the very point that sent me to hell. Uh, Barbara and I remember sitting here in a preacher preaching Jessup, you know, a friend of mine at the time, we were working together. One sin can send you to hell. You know, and you think, man, you, you're getting down to it, you know, nobody's perfect. Well, if you want to, there's a sense in which I can be right. 
If you want to say somebody who is willfully, premeditatively sinning against God and absolutely refuses to repent, well, sure, you know, nobody can do that. But to get up and preach like that, I don't care. In fact, he even had a statement up there. No matter how much faith you got, no matter how much love you got, this sin, you know, could sin. And to think, well, no matter how much I love God or no matter how much faith I got, that if, if, if it comes out that I'm wrong on some particular point and I'm actually doing something wrong, that's going to cost me my soul. What comfort is that? By that very lesson, he's destroying the good news. And so then we get up and, and in our sermons, and I did this, you know, in, in embarrassed. Uh, you know, I think of all the time that I wasted because of the background. You get up here and, and you actually wind up condemning this fellow over here who loves the Lord because you think he's wrong on some point. And, uh, and you're trying to, try to get him to think he'll go to hell so he'll go ahead and repent of that point, you know, and get where you want him to be. And all of that misses the point here. In other words, from, what, from within the understanding of salvation in Christ, you and I can sit down as brothers and sisters in Christ because of our common faith in his sacrifice and knowledge that we're saved in him. And if we have a difference, we can study it, not because you think I'm going to hell or you think you're going to hell or anything, but with the attitude that I can look at you and I say, well, if he's wrong on that, it's because he misunderstands it. You can look at me and say, if I'm wrong on that, it's because I have misunderstanding. And so as two saved people in Christ, we sit down, and I don't have to prove anything, you don't have to prove anything, we just try to find out what he says. But the way it was, with no timetable involved. No timetable. Yeah. But uh, I've only got a certain amount of time to get you. Yeah, right. Or just accept the fact. Or if you don't, if you don't see it tonight or this month, then you didn't succeed. But to show you yeah. that the, the two, the two attitudes that, that exist on on um, on the salvation, the Ethiopian unit, you know, believed and 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 and, and immersed in all that, and went on rejoicing. Right. right. And. And sometimes people today, is a, you know, uh, uh, I'm safe now. And right. it's a totally different attitude there. You know, one is running from something, right? right. And other one is, is, is rejoicing because he got it. Yeah. Well, look at all these people that are but saved here. Different attitude, didn't they? they didn't even have the New Testament hadn't been completed, completed yet. And they were still learning all this. But they were, they were saved in Christ all the time that they were getting you know, the same thing is, like, you know, it's like they preach that one sin will send you to hell, but on the, well, but on the other hand, they would say, well, no, I'm not perfect. So it's like they picked out the sins you can be guilty of, and the ones that there's no way you can be wrong on this and this and this and this. And how many times have you heard, you, um, heard verse 16 used in a wrong way? Like you said, it's almost like the gospel or the, the, these points, you know, that we've decided that needs, that are necessary doctrine for the church. Like, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. They preach it like we're not ashamed of this doctrine that the church has, you know. But it seems like it's people, that, that it seems like that, that, uh, that there's a great many people, Paul, that have wound up as tight as a rubber band. You know, with all this tension and all that, because I mean, they don't, really don't understand the freedom and the grace that, that, that Paul's talking about there. And when Paul made the statement, he says, I have the peace that surpasses all understanding. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, how can you have that kind of peace in that new seven America? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, but the good news is you can. That you, you can have uh, another thing that I, statistic I come in contact with some years later that bothered me. And that is that a 
a study done by, I forget the name of the sociologist now, but it was published and made headway for a period of time. It pointed out that it was interesting to them that uh, people from very fundamentalist backgrounds uh, in the Bible were on a percentage basis more apt to wind up in a mental ward than people of a more liberal. Well, how could that be? Uh, Jay Adams is one that did bring it out. Well, how, can that, how can that be that, uh, that uh, you're saying that the people that really believe the Bible are more apt, more apt to be over here and, and have a mental breakdown than the liberals who, who don't have the same kind of real strong thing? Well, what it is, it, it wasn't that, you know, the belief in the Bible is great, but a lot of the fundamentalist groups know teach a very legalistic gospel that demands perfection in so many areas that the people never feel peace. They always feel they're coming up short. You know, you, you never give enough, you never do enough, and so they always feel bad about themselves because they're not good enough. Well, the truth is they're not good enough, and nobody's good enough, and, and the gospel is designed to bring peace of mind and let you know, no, you're not good enough. The Lord was good enough. Put your trust in Him, and you just start out like a babe in Christ, and you just mature and develop and and know that your salvation is in Christ. So that gives me peace of mind. But you, you give me this legal system that I've got to work through, and I can never feel good, because I've always got to feel guilty. And by the way, guilt is one of the number one destroyers of the of people, so far as putting in places like that. If you feel guilt, it's going to affect your mind over, over a period of time. Anybody else with anything? Uh, Okay, let's go on to that fourth chapter. Uh, Paul refers to himself as a prisoner in the Lord. And he was. He was, in, he was in a Roman prison at this time and was suffering in that jail. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body. We're all part of this one one body, one spirit, one Holy Spirit. Just as you were called in one hope, we all have the same hope, the resurrection of the dead in, in, in our, our eternal life in Christ Jesus. One Lord, all is one, one faith, that trust in Jesus, one baptism, and one God. That's it. And who is over all and through all and in all. So, there is your oneness that we can all be in agreement on, uh, that our one God, our one faith, our one baptism in Him, the one Holy Spirit, the one Lord, the one body, and God wants us to understand that and, and recognize that oneness that we have in Christ. And those things that all of us as, as believers and followers of Jesus would have in, have in common. But to each of you, uh, each one of you, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and, and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean, except he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended, higher than the heavens. All right, all he's saying there, to the best of my understanding, is that they thought of Christ as having ascended to heaven. Well, obviously, he says, when you say he has ascended, you're also acknowledging he descended. And so the one that came from heaven and descended to this earth, took upon himself the form of man, though, has now ascended back to heaven, where he, where he was before. 
And so he was the God-man here on this earth who is now ascended back, back to heaven. All right, as he went back to heaven then, he gave some to the apostles, verse 11, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, teachers, and then the job to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure and the fullness of Christ. Then we will be no longer infants tossed back and forth by waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming, instead speaking the truth in love. Okay, that at this time, the New Testament is not complete. The, the Lord has left apostles and prophets and these people with the miraculous gifts and they're teaching and they're going to write the New Testament. All right, during this period of time, while you don't have a New Testament that you can go to or anything like that, people are going around saying, hey, you have to be circumcised to be saved. You can't eat this meat and you're supposed to eat and got them all confused and everything like that. But God's eventual program as a result of the apostles and everything we would eventually have all of the New Testament written by the apostles and prophets. They would eventually have the pastors or elders picked within the churches and all to, as mature leaders and they were trained by the apostles and picked and everything like that. And then the church, with all of this information and that leadership and all, would reach the point that you need not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. In other words, in other words if I come to you now and start trying to persuade you of something, You've got God's complete will and testament. You've got the work of the Holy Spirit. And there's no need for me to deceive you. you just got to say, well, Paul, where are you quoted from? You know, where are you at? And if you can't turn over and read it, then, uh, then you know, I just hang it up. And, that, and that's it. And if I start to reason with you about the deity of Jesus and try to persuade you that he was really not God or anything like that, if you want to refresh your mind, oh, you've got to turn over and read John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John wrote that specifically to answer the Gnostics of his day. When John wrote, there was a group that had come on the scene that we now refer to as the Gnostics. The word Gnostic is a Greek word that means knowledge. And as a group of philosophers, they had at first been converted to Christianity, and then through their own reasoning, they began to speculate from their background that, that it would be impossible for deity to indwell human flesh. And so they began to fight this. Well, then John, the Gospel according to John, and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were written to refute the teaching of the Gnostics. Paul wrote Corinthians to refute the false teaching of the resurrection and the various other things. Uh, Paul wrote Galatians to refute the false teachings of the Jews who were trying to teach the things about the law of Moses. Paul wrote Ephesians to enlighten them about the good news of Jew and Gentile together in a certain way of life and everything. And so he makes a statement that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he didn't just leave us as orphans. Uh, remember Jesus in the Gospels, that when, when they were concerned about his going away, that they were going to be left alone? And he says, no, if I, if I go, I'll send the Holy Spirit to you. And the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. And he'll give you a remembrance of all I've taught. And so Jesus went, but he sent the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've got it all. He brought to the remembrance all that he had taught. He guided them into all truth. And then, of course, all through the centuries, God's providential care has been so that we can have the same information that they had 
right now, and God is still involved in the affairs of men and things like that. And so that now, unlike when it was first starting out and they were babes in Christ, you can be, but you and I don't have to be tossed to involve the every wind of doctrine that comes, that we've got his word that we can go and check everything out with. Anybody with any comments on uh, that section? Okay, uh, interesting, he, the latter part of the fourth chapter and into the fifth, he t all he talks about is, and so I won't read word for word, I'll just point out certain things. He talks about a way of life. Uh, he talks about the Gentiles, in verse 17, who are darkened in their understanding, verse 18. They've lost all sensitivity, and they gave themselves to sensuality, uh, they indulged in all kinds of impurity, had a continual lust for more. And he says, you didn't come to know Christ that way, though. And you heard of him and were taught of him in accordance with the truth. You were taught in regard to your former way of life to put off your old self and to be made new. And in verse 23 now, in an attitude of your minds, put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood, speak truthfully. And then in your anger, don't sin. And as Christians, we're taught to control our anger. And then if you've been a thief, verse 28, don't steal anymore. And uh, verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful. And then he comes all the way down, chapter 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God uh, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And then among, verse 3, among you there must not even be the hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse jokes, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. And for this you can be sure, no immoral or impure or greedy person, such as an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Now, you and I might look on that and say, what do you mean? How can anybody into <coughs> thinking that's okay? Well, remember their background. In idolatry, their friends were still out there fornicating and doing all of those things in worship to their pagan idols, and they didn't think any of these things were wrong. And so they would argue with these people that had been converted to Christ. And so Paul's saying, hey, you didn't learn Christ in this way. You were that way. But now you've, been learned, you've learned different, and, and if you're to become like Christ, and to become like God, and, and God, uh, God is truthful, Christ is truthful, and, and he enumerates on this way of life, and he says, don't let these people deceive you that you won't enter this eternal kingdom if you live like that, and you, that uh, God's wrath comes on that kind of thing. And so don't be led astray into that kind of thing. Then he comes on down to verse 11. He says, have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness. And that word where it says have nothing to do, the New American Standard says do not participate with, the American Standard says have no fellowship with. It, the literal meaning of the word, all of it's accurate, but it means has reference to fellowship. There's people that live like that. Now, we're going to pause there for a minute to show you again a, a little bit of a, what we do with taking verses. I had a pamphlet that I read not too long back where somebody in the... Uh, uh, one religious group is trying to show how that you ought not to fellowship people in another religious group. And he pointed out how that they were wrong on this doctrine and they were wrong on that doctrine. 
And then he quotes Ephesians 5:11, have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness. Well, it's interesting. I have read pamphlets from several groups over the years that use this same passage. And they'll talk about this group out here, they're not doing this right, they're not doing that, and have no fellowship with them. But I want you to look at the context there. Paul is talking about godliness and life. And he's talking about not having fellowship with people out there that are fornicating and lying and stealing and, and living in that way. And for me to come along and take this passage out of context and say, look over here at Hugh, and here Hugh loves the Lord and he's living a godly life, but Hugh believes some doctrine a little different than I do. You know, that uh, uh, I don't sing with the piano and Hugh sings with Piano. So we have a we have a different under, we have a different understanding. And I say I can't have any fellowship with you because I'm not to unfellowship unfruitful works of darkness. And so Jack, you can't fellowship with me because when he sings, he's got that piano going. You know. Well, he, this context not don't have anything to say about pianos or not pianos. It, it's talking about a certain type of life. Or I might look over and say, Hugh believes premillennialism. I don't believe it. So therefore, I can fellowship that unfruitful work of darkness. Well, I believe it's a total misuse of that passage to take it out of a context where he's talking about godliness in life and then create a situation where that every time that this fellow has a, this very sincere person who may be more godly than I am or anybody else in the group I'm in fellowship with, that I'm supposed to withdraw fellowship from him because he has a misunderstanding, in my opinion, you know, of some doctrine that in its context, he's talking about people who are willfully sinning in an ungodly way. And that's what we're not going to have. Deeds are Oh, that's the end he's talking about there. That uh, they were, see in verse 8, you were once in darkness, but now you're in light, live as children of light. And in darkness, he's told them that they used to steal, they used to fornicate, they used to do all those things. Now they've been... Talk just the opposite. Well, it is shameful even to mention what what this is being secret. Right. Right. Of course, they did it all. You know, I mean, the whole bit from the fornication, the adultery, the, the homosexuality, the lying, the stealing, the whole bit. It's shameful even to talk about it. <coughs> and again, we're not talking about, you're talking about a way of life. But you're not living that way, thinking, hey, I'm, a, I'm earning my salvation doing this. No, you're a saved person that loves God and knows Jesus wants you to live this way, and out of love you respond in this way. Well, somebody says, well, what about the person who doesn't respond this way? He says, hey, I believe in Jesus, but I'm going to live out here. Well, in reality, he doesn't have his trust in Jesus. And that's what Jesus was talking about when he said, why call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say. That for me to say I have my trust in Jesus and then be doing something else is like saying that uh, I believe that uh, Ford is the best car on the road and I go out there and buy a Chevrolet. You know, that's, that's, that, there's a contradiction there. You Have know, you ever heard that, that verse uh, uh, shamefully even mentioned what this going to be a secret? Have you ever heard a preacher or somebody use that to mention uh, something Yeah. I have to. Yeah, I heard they get very verse. Yeah, because of some of the secret. I'm not a rituals. No, I'm not a mason, and and the best thing that personally couldn't be one, but I agree with you. Best thing that out of context, right? Right. In other words, that that uh, 
in order for that to be accurate, you'd have to know that the Masons over here in secret are fornicating and stealing and lying and all, and, and I don't think anybody wants to say that. You know, that that's a complete, that's a good example here of taking a verse just because they have some things they do in secret and say, hey, we don't fellowship that. Well, if, if I'm not, if I don't, it's for some other reason. That's a good point. You know, it, it's so uh, interesting that, you know, one of the ways that we have harmed the use of the Bible is by doing something with it we don't do with any other book. Every other book, chemistry, biology, or history, we write in paragraphs and we read for the meaning. We come to the Bible and we break all those up little verses and we just constantly are grabbing little half sentences and quoting them in order to prove our point. When you, when you put that in context, it, it may not say that at all. It, it, uh, words have meaning because of context. Okay, now, again, uh, I don't think you need to go into detail on the rest other than to hit the point to see his perspective that most of this is dealing with a godly way of life, just like all the letters. Look what he, he says in verse chapter, chapter 5, the imitators of God tells you what you do to be imitators in. Look at verse 15. Be careful how you live. <clears throat> do not be foolish, verse 17, but understand what the Lord's will is. What is the Lord's will? No big complicated thing. Don't get drunk. Be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Give thanks to God always. Right, look at this, verse 22. A whole Christian way of life. Wives, submit to your husbands. Okay, he talks about that. Then look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Well, like I've, I think one of the best sermons I ever heard on this was by James Watkins. He's pointing out that if husbands really love their wives like Christ loved the church, you probably would have never had a woman's live movement in the first place. That uh, another one, on the one hand, that the wife is told to submit, but on the other hand, the husband's told to love her as his own body, as his own flesh, and is to love her in the same way that Christ loved the church. All right, then in chapter 6, he, he's talked about the wife, he's talked about the husband. Chapter 6, verse 1 Children, obey your parents. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may enjoy a long life. In other words, hey, you children. Your parents want what is best for you. You're going to live a longer life if you listen to them. Then, verse 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters. Uh, this can be misused and was misused by the South back at the time they had slavery here. Uh, when we think of slaves, we think of, uh, in our society, you know, we went over to Africa and hauled those people over here. But... At this time, a lot of those people were bond servants because they ran up debts and then they had to sell themselves to pay for a debt. Uh, sometimes, like uh, uh, Jacob, they wanted a wife and they didn't have any money to pay the dowry, and so they had to sell themselves in bondage for a period of time to pay for that. And that's the kind of slavery that existed in that in that particular time. He tells them, slaves, go ahead, you act a certain way. Then in verse 9, Masters treat your slaves in the same way. So he talks about husbands, wives, children, and the slave-master relationship. And all he's doing is talking all through here how a Christian ought to conduct himself. Then he ends his whole book by talking about the full armor of God. Verse 11, put on the armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. 
They said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, our argument is not going to be one with the sword, it's going to be one with words, but against rulers and authorities and against powers. And therefore, put, verse 13, put on the full armor of God. Verse 14, truth, uh, righteousness. Uh, 15, the gospel of peace. Faith, uh, 16, faith. 17, uh, take up the helmet of salvation. And then the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is the sword that the Holy Spirit uses. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this, be on the alert. Keep on praying for the saints. Pray for me. And then he again, in verse 20, alludes to the fact that he's in jail. gives his final greetings at the end of the book itself. And so he pictures the... <clears throat> he takes a Roman soldier of his day, and a Roman soldier wore a helmet, and he had a shield, and he was girded, and he had a sword. And Paul just tells us that our battle is not like the Roman soldier who's out there fighting the flesh to battle. That our battle is for the minds of people. And it's fought with truth, and it's fought with faith, and it's fought with the Word of God, and, it's, and our, our feet ought to be quick to take the good news for salvation of us. And that's the battle that we're, we're concerned with. This prayer, uh, verse 18, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and prayer. Uh, and your opinion was it? Was it well, I just say there's probably several ways people can take it, but I, I think it is that the prayer that would come from your heart, from your from your spirit and everything, and your inner being. Uh, it could also be that, uh, in the same sense that uh, in Romans, Paul made the statement that sometimes you don't even know how to pray as you are, but the Holy Spirit prays with groanings too deep with words and all. Uh, that uh, whichever way they understood that in their context, you know, I really don't know. But that could be a whole new, a whole new topic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. That would be kind of, I guess, Right. Well, I think there are times when, you know, you pray, and so like Jesus praying in the garden, and he said, Father, I want such and such, but nevertheless, thy will be done. I think there are times when you pray, and yet at the same time, you're not sure about the will of God on some point. And so then you have to uh, pray for whatever understanding or enlightenment that you might providentially get that would help you know the will of God. So, For example, if we go to war against Russia, you just think about it. How do you know it's the will of God that this country went? That a policy of God all through history has sometimes been to, to use an ungodly nation to punish uh, his people. And so, uh, remember what Jeremiah said to the Jews in his day. He says, quit praying against Nebuchadnezzar because God's going to use Nebuchadnezzar to punish you. So, we don't know. So, I just pray that God, you know, if possible, this is what I want. And, and, and then again, you might want for more information there. But one thing you do see all through Paul's writings is the tremendous power that he believed the Christian had in prayer. That it is part of God's will to operate through the prayers of Christians. And that uh, with our faith in him, that uh, just like James said, that Elijah was a man just like us, and he prayed that it didn't rain. He prayed again that it did. But uh, there's no question that they definitely taught the people to realize the, the power that they had in prayer. Anybody else with any comments over anything we covered there? You know, isn't it interesting that, too, when you sit down, it is to me that... Uh, that 
how much of the material centers around just that good news of salvation in Jesus and then the kind of life that God wants us to live. And it seems so sad that, that so many different denominations have formed and so much bickering and squabbling that it's like we could have all been one even though we would have various differences and to just simply look on one another as Christians and brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, that, that even though that in all the time that uh, uh, if there's one of the best illustrations I heard on even coming to know truth that truth is the summation of all the facts on any subject. If it's ten facts that compose this particular truth, if I know eight and Mark knows nine, and you know seven, and Jack knows five. We each are going to form a conclusion based on those facts. We, everyone, can be intelligent and sincere and come to a wrong conclusion, simply because of some fact that you don't know. And uh, so, But yet we have a tendency to look on somebody that has come to a different conclusion than we have on some point and say, hey, he's insincere, uh, he's such and such, when the truth is, he may be just as sincere as I am, may be just intelligent, maybe more intelligent, but there may be just by my background as such that maybe it's given me a couple of facts that his background hasn't given him or vice versa. But if we recognize that good news of salvation in Christ, then as brothers and sisters we can just simply discuss and he's got a few facts he can give me, that's great. If I've got a few I can give him, it's great. We, we can wind up together. But we create these big barriers so that we don't ever sit down and study, so we can get together on these points. And then pride in the end? Sure. <laughs> I get together with you, and you're trying to make a Baptist out of me, and I'm trying to make a Methodist out of you. And, you know, and, 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 and I'm more interested in the Baptist than Christianity, and you're more interested in Methodist than Christianity, whatever it might be. I saw where you Tom's about calling uh, you've been watching. Oh, yeah, oh, it's, uh, I noticed, of course, I watched the report last time. 